Let's jump into the message. We're continuing our Kings series. We're in First and Second Kings. God breaks in. And I'm going to dive right in to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. This is after what Jim preached last week, which is that the Syrian army tried to go after uh, Elijah, and actually uh, God broke in, and God blinded the entire army so that they were useless against Elijah and Israel. But here it says, sometime later, however, literally next verse, King Ben-Hadad of Aram, which is Syria, mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria, the capital of Israel. As a result, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for five pieces of silver. I want to pause there because (laughs) my study did not reveal conclusively why you would want a cup of bird poop. However... This is actually a bit of a description of how bad it got. It was likely that the head of a donkey was for food, right? This is what they had left. And that even the dove's dung was food or fuel to cook. Can you imagine cooking your donkey head under a cup of dove's dung? I mean, I know it sounds funny, but it was a desperate situation. And that doesn't even depict the desperation of what was going on here. It said, one day as the king of Israel was walking along the wall of the city, a woman called to him, please help me, my lord, the king. He answered, if the lord doesn't help you, what can I do? Or, or I actually like to read it this way. Well, if the lord doesn't help you, what can I do? He's actually taking a real shot at God in that moment. I have neither food from the threshing floor nor wine from the press to give you. But then the king asked, it seems he comes to his senses, what is the matter? She replied, this woman said to me, come on, let's eat your son today. Then we will eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and ate him. Then the next day I said to her, kill your son so we can eat him. But she has hidden her son. Now, I just have to pause there because it's easy to think in sort of mythical terms. Well, this is ancient world and, you know, did this really happen? Does this really happen? Actually, this happens in modern times. In fact, in the early 1900s in Ukraine, there are reports during a great famine of people eating their children. I don't want to dwell on that too long, but I'm trying to just paint a picture of the absolute desperation that Israel is in right now. And of course, in verse 30, it says, when the king heard this, he tore his clothes in despair. And as the king walked along the wall, the people could see that he was wearing burlap under his robe next to his skin. This is a sign of of repentance because for some reason, somehow, and we don't know, but they recognize that actually this is from the Lord. This is actually something that is a result of their own sin. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, verse 53 of chapter 28, this is part of what the Lord says is going to happen if they disobey. It says in verse 53, and you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. So this is a mess of a situation. The king is 
it seems repenting, but then we give you the next line. May God strike me and even kill me if I don't separate Elisha's head from his shoulders this very day, the king vowed. Elisha, God's representative. Well, Elisha was sitting in his house with the elders of Israel when the king sent a messenger to summon him. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha, Elisha said to the elders, a murderer has sent a man to cut off my head. When he arrives, shut the door and keep him out. We will soon hear his master's steps following him. While Elisha was still saying this, the messenger arrived and the king said, all this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha replied in chapter seven, verse one, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow, in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will only cost one piece of silver and 12 quarts of barley will cost only one piece of silver. This is cheap compared to the donkey's head and the bird poop. Verse two, the officer assisting the king said to the man of God, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But Elisha replied, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. Now, there were four men with leprosy. Now, here it is, scene break, cut to four men with leprosy, sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Why should we sit here waiting to die, they asked each other. We'll starve if we stay here. But with the famine in the city, we will starve if we go back there. So we might as well go out and surrender to the Aramean army if they let us live so much the better. But if they kill us, we would have died anyway. So at twilight, they set out for the camp of the Arameans. But when they came to the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and the galloping of horses and the sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittites and Egyptians to attack us, they cried to one another. So they panicked and ran into the night, abandoning their tents, horses, donkeys, and everything else as they fled for their lives. When the men with leprosy arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after another, eating and drinking wine, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and hid it. Finally, they said to each other, this, this is not right. This is a day of good news, and, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. If we wait until morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come on, let's go back and tell the people at the palace. So they went back to the city and told the gatekeepers what had happened. We went out to the Aramean camp, they said, and no one was there. The horses and donkeys were tethered, and the tents were all in order, but there wasn't a single person around. Then the gatekeepers shouted the news to the people in the palace. The last two verses say this. The king got out of bed in the middle of the night and told his officers, I know what happened. The Arameans know we're starving, so they left their camp and have hidden in the fields. They're expecting us to leave the city, and they will take us alive and capture the city. One of his officers replied, we had better send out scouts to check into this. Let them take five of the remaining horses. If something happens to them, it will be no worse than if they stay here and die with the rest of us. What an incredible and strange story in my estimation. And I know it's a lot to digest. It was a lot for me when I first read it. And I just thought, what is God doing here? Well, one of the things that we see, and, and you know, it's interesting, especially with Pat's word this morning about being in battle, 
and the peace that comes. I didn't know he was gonna say that. And I rarely actually title my message before like somebody calls me and goes, what's the title of your message for the website? And I, I don't know. But this one just came clear to me and, and, and it was when we're under siege, because they're under siege and God wants to teach us some things about what it means to be under siege, to how to respond when we're under siege. Well, the first thing that we need when we're under siege is godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is so important because it's one of the first things to go. When we are emotionally overcome, our our rationality, our, our wisdom just leaves us, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes you just feel like you're upside down, you're spinning. And here, this is such an interesting story because if you remember 1 Kings 3, there's a famous story where two women come to Solomon, two babies, one who has died, the other one who still lives. Do you remember that? This is one of the great hallmarks. This is the signature of Solomon's wisdom. He sorts it out. I won't go into it. But he exercises godly wisdom in the midst of this. Here, basically, This king says nothing. He says, how can I help you? What am I supposed to do about this? And actually, when she tells him the story, he does nothing but just rips his clothes. And I just think it's a sign of the abandonment of godly wisdom, this dependence on God, this this seeking of God. So we have to be careful that when we're under siege, wisdom just departs, doesn't it? Here, it just goes out the window and where this king could have come and and sought God and exercised godly wisdom to help these women in distress, it had just gone. And so we have to realize that godly wisdom is so important to us. How do you seek wisdom when you're under siege? Who do you go to? Where do you go? Are you proactive about seeking wisdom when you're under siege? Or do you just lament as he did and tore his clothes, which is fine, but let's not stop there. The other thing we need when we're under siege is is repentance, but authentic repentance. See here, King Joram was actually repenting, right? He, he did the right thing. He had the sackcloth, the burlap, under his clothing, right next to his skin. That's a, a sign of repentance. But in his heart, what does he say? It says he tore his clothes in despair. As the king walked along the wall, the people could see that he was wearing burlap under his robe next to his skin. But his next line is, may God strike me and even kill me if I don't separate Elisha's head from his shoulders this very day, the king vowed. It's just such a picture of false repentance, right? Because outside, this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, death literally on the inside. Burlap on the outside, all the right stuff, going through the motions, but inside, death. I want to bring death to that man. And that man, by the way, is a representative of God. You cannot simultaneously turn away from sin and toward God, which is what repentance is, and then try to kill him. And so I think God wants to drive deeper. Trav talked about this a couple of weeks ago in talking about Naaman. Repentance is often this like antiquated word that basically just means we should feel guilty. Oh, but that's not what it is. 
It's a gift. It's the gift of grace that God offers us to say, guess what? All you have to do, turn away. Turn away from what you're into, what you're pursuing, what's got your attention right now, and turn toward me. He's saying, that's it. That's repentance. That's what I'm offering you. Wherein you do deserve punishment or you deserve wrath, actually what I'm offering you is just turn around. That's what repentance is. It's not condemnation and self-flagellation. And Repentance has been cast in such an ugly way by cults and movements over the course of thousands of years. And that's what we saw, remember? When Elisha was on the mountain, when Elijah was on the mountain, and they were cutting themselves with stones, they they recognized their need to, to bleed for their sins. But actually, because of Jesus' blood, repentance is simply turning away. What under siege have you turned to for satisfaction? What in the midst of stress and difficulty and anxiety have you tried to grab hold of that he's saying, let go and just turn around? Because under siege, we need to lay hold of authentic repentance, godly wisdom, seeking his face, his will, understanding him, and authentic repentance, turning away from those things. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that water to your soul? Isn't that not weight, but freedom? That's what repentance is. It's freedom. What's the other thing we need when we're under siege? Well, it's demonstrated so well here in this passage, a complete lack and absence of it, but it's patience. It's patience. Which just doesn't really, it doesn't land, does it? Because actually what we want to do is be right out of whatever it is. I want to be out of this siege. I want to be out of these circumstances. I want to be out of the, the difficulty, out from under the weight of what I'm experiencing. And in verse 33 of chapter 6, it says, All this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Oh man, I paused on that one and I was like, I've said that. I've said that. Even if not the first part, the second part, why should I wait on the Lord any longer? Patience. Oh, it sounds just like a platitude or a bumper sticker, but... Oh, it's deep, and it's raw, and, 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 it's, and there's gravity to it. Patience, actually, is one of the best indications of our disposition toward God. We actually believe in him, we trust him, and we know that he's sovereign and that he can and will deliver us from whatever the circumstances are. Like, do we believe that? Because if, if and when we do, we, we have patience. Simply put, we can wait on the Lord. All this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Have you asked yourself that question recently? God, I don't want to wait anymore. Somehow God has not seen fit to bring you out, to bring you through. But patience says, I know he will. I know he will. I know he will. I know so well that he will. I won't shake my fist. I won't abandon the deepest truths that I cling to, I will only cling to them harder. He is Lord. He will have his way. He is Lord. He is Lord. He will have his way. Hey, guys, 
He is Lord and he will have his way. Do you believe that? Because that will give you patience for the journey. It will give you the ability to wait. Another thing that we see here, and and this I think is probably one of the greatest besetting sins that any of us can have or be guilty of is cynicism. What sets in under siege when we've become impatient and we've lost hope is, is just this cynicism. So here are the king and his messenger and the messenger pipes up and says, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. Ooh, that, like that's chilling, isn't it? He's basically, he's basically just pushing that away, the very possibility that the Lord would open the windows of heaven. I had somebody say when I was talking to me about this, I've been feeling that way about the venue. <laughs> like I just wanna, want a place for us to land and, and, I, and I've started to think in, in my own heart, that couldn't happen even if, even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But whether it's that or you've got your own version of that, have you grown cynical? Because cynicism is not actually, as we see right here, an openness to the heart of God, to wait for what he will provide. Isn't that right? We grow skeptical. Why do we do that? It happens just a few verses later in chapter 12. They come and they wake up the king in the middle of the night, and his first reaction is, I know what happened. The Arameans know we're starving, so they've left the camp and have hidden in the fields. They're expecting us to leave the city, and then they will take us alive and capture the city. He knows. He knows. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know anything. And in fact, he's convinced him of something that, himself of something that is not true. In your cynicism, in my cynicism, have I convinced myself of something that is not true? It is easy to do that because we become disillusioned and disappointed. Our expectations have not been met, and so we just go, you know what, I've had it with this. And even when good news comes, this is great news. And even in light of this hopeful news, he says, I know what happened. This isn't what it seems. This is actually just another worse scenario. It hasn't gotten better. It's gotten worse. And so I think, and I've, I've written it like this, I think we need under siege, we need anti-cynicism, which is just hope. Do you feel like you've, you've lost hope? Because these are two sides of the same coin. If you become cynical, and I say anti-cynicism because I think we've got to take a very proactive stance against cynicism. Kids aren't cynical, are they? Like, Jesus said for us to have the faith of a child. Have you ever met like a cynical four-year-old? I mean, there are some, I'll grant you. I've met some little tyrants in my life. But for the most part, I mean, that's just not the, you know, kids aren't sitting there with their arms crossed doubting everything all the time. In fact, they're quite naive, right? They'll just just kind of believe stuff. And and part of that is, is what we all, we need a tenderness to come back into our hearts because the hardness has, has actually kept God at a distance. That's cynicism. 
I want to just summarize the end of the story. It says, the scouts went and, and then actually found what the lepers said was true. This is getting into verses 14 through 20. The Aramaeans had fled the camp, leaving the clothes in their wake, not plotting against Samaria. And they knew that just because they just abandoned everything. So the Israelites plundered the camp, and because of the windfall, just as Elisha said, six quarts of choice flour were sold that day for one piece of silver, and 12 quarts of barley grain were sold for one piece of silver. And that officer that Elisha said would see it but not eat any of it, he was actually put in charge of traffic at the gate, and he was trampled. Not only did he not eat, he died because of cynicism. He opened up his mouth, and what came out was the depths of his heart, which is, I don't believe God for a second. And Elisha said, then you'll have that. Anti-cynicism. But why does cynicism set in like it does? We are so prone to some measure of hopelessness or cynicism came across this incredible quote. I was looking for something else, and this just leapt out to me. And, and I think what, what happens and what I've experienced is that actually year after year, disappointment after disappointment, expectation after expectation that is not met in the exact same way that I think it should be, actually, I, I, I just land in a place where I don't dream about, hope for, believe in, anything. What a, what a terrible place to be. And I think there's a remedy for that because none of us will get everything we thought we would. None of us will live the lives we thought we would. None of us will see whatever it is that we expected to see when we were young and wonderfully naive and so John Piper says this, and I love, he starts off with this one word. I just want to put up this one word, occasionally. This is his advice to us, occasionally. He doesn't say just do this and then forget about it. He says occasionally. He talks about this as if it's a process, and I think this is so helpful, occasionally, rhythmically, cyclically, because we are we're prone to become disappointed, aren't we? Disappointment and, and hopelessness can be cyclical for us. So he says, occasionally, he says, occasionally, weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. Isn't that beautiful? It doesn't say deny it, but it doesn't say live there either. It says process it occasionally. There will be moments when you need to do this, more often than not. But then he says, wash your face. I love how he says that, because presumably we're a mess as we grieve the losses. Wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have because it is a gift from him. I think this is one of the places we need to repent most so it's not a sin to be disappointed, right? But we all know that disappointment turns into dissatisfaction, turns into discontentment, turns into resentment of God. Clearly, the king resents God in this moment. Clearly. And here's the thing. Guys, they were under horrible, awful circumstances. Their own doing, we know that. 
But we can become far more disillusioned in far easier circumstances, can't we? But beware and repent of resentment for not getting the life you wanted. Wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. It's not sinful to desire, but actually when it becomes an idol or a fixation, and then we resent God when we don't get it. Listen, what it says to maintain hope is that God can deliver me from this situation because he can, because he can, and he will. But he's going, how is your heart going to be toward me? I mean, look at how the king shook his fist. Look at the attitude of all of these people that we see here represented. And yet he still breaks in, not to destroy them, not to punish them, but to, to provide relief. Have you ever had those situations where you're like, oh man, I got out of that and I wish I would have handled it better. I, w- I wish, oh, there was a way I could have been that would have been different. And we learn from those moments because God will deliver. God can deliver. God is with you. God is for you. He is gracious. Even these sad sacks, he's willing. He's willing to save them. He's willing. They turned their back on him. He is punishing them and he is still willing to deliver them. I just want to say, just when you think he won't, he breaks in. Just when you think he can't, he breaks in. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it may, but he breaks in. He will, and hope says, anti-cynicism says, he will break in. He sees me, he knows me, he knows exactly what I'm experiencing, and he will break in. They are in absolutely desperate circumstances. But man, we go to these places in our minds for far less Or maybe you're in a desperate circumstance this morning. The other thing we can't neglect here is this officer who is trampled. That's a severe consequence. And I think we just have to, if we're going to read the word for everything it's saying, we have to recognize God does not deal lightly with our unbelief. When we reject him, When we say, you know what? You can't do it. He does not deal lightly. We have to be sobered. It gives us strength and it gives us hope, but we've got to be sobered by what's happening here. Commentator who I've drawn on for for this message and that's been so helpful in Kings named Tony Morita, he says this, because of our soft, tolerant culture, we don't like to hear that God punishes those who reject him. Even in a church culture tempted to believe that the only attribute of God is love, we ignore his holiness, truth, and wrath. But the fact remains, you'll be judged if you don't respond in faith to God's word. Jesus said that at the end of the age, angels will gather up evil people and throw them into the blazing furnace. What a nice message. It's not nice. None of this is nice. It's real. And it's what makes the gift of Jesus Christ who died so that we could avoid that even more glorious. It's what makes it shine so brightly. Jesus didn't just spare us from a little bit of hardship. He actually spared us from this. 
a gathering of those who don't put their faith in him and burn them in a blazing furnace. I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but if I'm gonna do justice to what happens to the officer, this is why. When we ask God to leave us alone, that's exactly what he gives him, gives us. Can I just implore you today, if you're here today and you have said, I really don't need to make a decision about that. This is really not that important. Can you just take a lesson from the officer? Actually, this thing of like, he can't do anything. He doesn't even really exist effectively. Oh, can I just plead with you that the free gift of God's grace, his breaking into your life, you may have come here and go, I... I don't believe in God. That's okay. This is a space for you to work that out, but it's not okay to end that way. We want you to work that out. Is it because you have experienced difficulty in your life that has led to disappointment that has caused you to say, I want nothing to do with him? His kindness to you is that he made the provision of Jesus Christ. He has broken in because otherwise you will perish you will spend eternity separated from him. That's the good news and the bad news. It's terrible news. It's sober news. But, but, and I love the gospel that is preached by the lepers. Because as they go and they enjoy the spoils of the leftover Syrian camp, they're sitting there enjoying it all, and this is the message to those of us that do believe, that do recognize what God has provided for us. He is telling us, well, he's saying this, this is not right for you to keep this to yourself. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. That's the message of the lepers, the outcast, the marginalized. That's us. We are those who were cast out, but actually he's brought us into a feast and let's not eat it alone, right? This is the day of good news. Let's not be caught sharing it with no one. Even these lepers knew, oh, we can't keep this to ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. And now the Spirit of the Lord is upon you who have put your faith in Jesus to not keep it to yourself but to share the good news. Under siege, we need to still share the good news. These guys were an impossible situation, and yet they knew they could not neglect to share the good news. Hey, friend, you are destined to be thrown into the blazing furnace. However, the good news is that Jesus has come to make a way. He has broken in to your life. He has made himself available such that when you lay hold of him and you put your faith in him, you will be eternally with him forever. We have to proclaim the good news. We have to continue to celebrate the good news because this is a simple message. I remember hearing Reinhard Bonke, who was 
A great evangelist had millions and millions of people. He had a goal of 100 million people coming to faith between 2010 and 2020. And he said, I'm a simple preacher. It's a simple message. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and he will save you. If you have not done that, if you're here today and you have not done that, can I just implore you, do that now. Believe that the God of all creation is powerful enough not only to cast you out, but to save you from your sin. That's the offer that he's making to you today. I'm gonna turn this over to Travis in just a moment. And we're gonna have communion and I really just want us to recognize that in the famine that is life often, he has provided a feast of his flesh and blood for our salvation. And I also just want to mention to any of you who have been on the fence, not sure, struggling with unbelief, hopelessness, actually not sure where you stand with God, participate in this communion. And maybe even for the first time, take of the bread and the juice to receive the free gift of God's grace that will secure your eternal future forever. Amen.